There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Welcome to Revealing the True Light, and this episode is going to be all about the Revelation of Angels, Part 2. Angels are an intriguing subject. They're mentioned quite often in the Bible. In fact, you can find references to angels over 250 times in the Bible. And their God-given purpose, according to biblical revelation, is so inseparably intertwined with God's plan for humankind that you see them interspersed through many stories, many events in the Bible. They have a genuine interest in the affairs of human beings because that's part of what they're commissioned to do. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. And so that's their heart, that's their passion, their purpose is to be involved in our lives and to somehow minister, even Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating blood because he was praying passionately, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The Bible talks about an angel comforting him, consoling him. When he was in the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and had a confrontation with the devil himself, angels came and comforted him, consoled him. And so, Even the Son of God had a connection to the angelic world because angels have a serious interest in the plan of God evolving in this world. And I have a couple of scriptures that show that. Luke chapter 15 verse 10 talks about someone repenting of their sin and coming to God and accepting the Lord in their lives. And it says, Likewise, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that leads me to believe that there's shouting and rejoicing going on in the heavenly sphere, in the celestial realm, when a person has a genuine repentant attitude over the sins of his or her past and then commits himself or herself to God. Think of that that angels rejoice when someone comes to salvation. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it talks about Old Testament prophets and scribes and leaders and spokespersons for God. And it says that to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things that have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel. In other words, much of the truth that was revealed in the Old Testament was preparation for what would be declared 
in this gospel era, and the word gospel means good news, and that started with the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost. The good news that God could now come and dwell in the hearts of human beings, and sin could be washed away by the blood that was shed on the cross. And the Bible says that when the gospel is preached, right here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it says that angels desire to look into those things. So in a sense, they're piecing the mystery together too. They're comprehending more deeply and more fully what God is doing in this world when the Holy Spirit is sent down from heaven and someone is preaching or teaching under the anointing of God, like hopefully I'm doing right now, then there must be angels present in the room listening to me as I expound the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to continue this teaching on angels by asking questions. I've got a list of about seven. I may not get to all of them, and it may make it necessary to have a part three on this teaching, but we'll dig into each one of these subjects as deeply as we can. Number one, does every human being have a guardian angel? I would lift my hands and say absolutely yes. Why? I believe there's biblical proof in the teachings of Jesus. Now, I must admit that there is no scripture that actually gives that title to an angel of a quote-unquote guardian angel. However, the scripture does describe angels guarding individuals. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, listen to what Jesus said. He was warning against the abuse or the mistreatment of children, and he said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, which really captivates my imagination because they're focused very intently two directions. They're focused on whatever child they've been given charge over, and they're focused on the Father in heaven. So they have this dual focus, and those angels are like a connecting link between that child that's probably oblivious to danger. How many times, I believe, my guardian angel probably intervened for me because I've come close to death about 10 times in my life where I should have been taken out. And God could have done it by himself without the help of an angel. But see, God likes to delegate things. He could, he could extend the gospel into all the world without preachers and teachers and Bible expositors. He, he could do it all himself, but he wants us to have a part. And apparently, he wants the angels to have a very viable part in what he does in the human race. Also, in Psalm 9111, this is strong language. It says, he shall give his angels charge over you to bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And so, they are not only capable of helping us, they have a charge to help us. And I do believe that it's possible you have more than one angel assigned to you. Because you could take Matthew 18.10 two ways. Jesus said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels 
always see the face of the Father in heaven. Now that plural word there could mean all of these different children that he's referring to, or when he said one of these little ones, he might have been saying they have more than one angel. Their angels, plural, always see the face of my Father in heaven. I don't really care <laughs> whether I have one or many because I believe that implies and reveals divine oversight in my life. Praise God for that. Now, should you be trying to communicate with your guardian angel? Absolutely not, because you're bound to be deceived. And I'm going to get to that possibly later on in this episode, or if not in this one, the next one. But I've got to ask question number two. Is there such a thing as the angel of death? Now, I know that's been celebrated in television programs, like Touched by an Angel. There's an angel of death in that program, but there is no such terminology in the Bible. You will not find any scripture in the Old or the New Testament that talks about a quote-unquote angel of death. However, angels have been very involved in the death of individuals and masses or groups of people. Like when the entire army that came against Jerusalem to battle uh, was crushed by one angel. Or Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 23, it says, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to the people. And the people kept shouting, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Very curious story. But that angel was not called an angel of death. Many times I've heard people preach on the last judgment that fell on Egypt right before the children of Israel were released from Egypt. And they say an angel of death went into the Egyptian homes. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible uses the word destroyer. It does not say an angel of death. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. God is warning the Israelites what's going to happen. And he says, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And that was God informing through Moses, the children of Israel, what to expect. He said the destroyer would not come into their houses. Then over in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, it talked about a time when the children of Israel complained in the wilderness and they said, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. And why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? And they were complaining and murmuring and grumbling. And as a consequence, serpents came in on the camp of Israel. And the Bible said that some of them were destroyed by the destroyer. They made themselves vulnerable to the destroyer by hardening their heart against God. Well, who is this destroyer? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus 
was talking about the enemy, Satan, and he said, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And it was symbolically a a representation of Satan as a thief, that he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. See, at one time, Satan had the power of death prior to the resurrection. The scripture indicates that, and that's a very strange truth out of God's word. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, Inasmuch then as the children have been partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise shared in the same, that through death, it's talking about Jesus, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And the scripture also talks about how Jesus obtained the keys to death and to Sheol or Hades, which is translated hell when he came out of the grave. So apparently prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Satan had a more controlling position in this world over those who passed away. And he, as the destroyer, would sometimes function in that role of the great reaper uh, he's been depicted as. So no, there's no specific angel assigned to take people from this world into the next. And the destroyer, that's probably a reference to Satan. But if you commit your life to the Lord, then you just pass from death unto life. And it's not destructive to you. It's a liberation of your soul into the heavenly world. Let's go to the next question. And this is a big one. What do angels look like? How many times you probably thought about that? What do angels look like? Now, I'm going to shock some of you with this statement, but normally angels are not depicted with wings in the Bible, and yet almost all the pictures you see, all the artwork, especially in the Renaissance, the artwork always depicted angels with wings because that kind of signified a difference between earthly people and heavenly entities. The wings set them apart. However, in the Bible, except for seraphim and cherubim, which are specific kinds of angels, I believe, normal angels are not depicted with wings. They actually often look like humans. For instance, in Genesis 18 and Genesis 19, when angels came to Abraham And when angels came to Lot to rescue Lot and his family from Sodom before the destruction of Sodom took place, they looked like men. They looked like ordinary men. Now, sometimes angels can assume a human-like form, and it's always one with male features. Now, again, many of your Hollywood-produced shows have angels with female features features and sometimes very voluptuous and lustful and sexy looking angels, which are certainly not the kind that heaven sins. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, we have an admonition not to forget to entertain strangers, for in so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels without knowing it. 
unawares. They didn't realize that it was an angel that they were blessing and not a human being. Now, my wife, Elizabeth, had an encounter with an angel that appeared like a human being. And in her case, it was a female. It was an elderly type of woman that looked very religious in the outfit that she was wearing. My wife had just gotten a report. Elizabeth had just been told that she had cancer and she was very distraught. I was out of town and the words kept ringing in her mind. I'm all alone facing this. I'm all alone facing this. And she was very distraught, very upset as a result. And she stepped in an elevator at the hospital. And as the doors closed, she turned around and there was a woman there. And I'm not sure that she even realized there was anyone in the elevator to begin with. In fact, she thought it was an empty elevator when she stepped in. And then when the doors closed, there's this woman behind her. And the woman said in a very soft and loving way, you look like you need a hug. Normally, Elizabeth wouldn't be responsive to a stranger, but in her situation, she was very broken over facing what she was facing. And, and uh, I guess she implied with the nodding of her head that maybe she did, or maybe this woman just bypassed any response from her and came over and put her arms around her and said, you're not alone in this, which is the very thing that had been going through her mind. She said, you're not alone in this and everything's going to be all right. The doors opened. She stepped out, turned around and looked and the angel was nowhere to be found. And about a month or two later, I don't know the exact timeline, the same woman dressed differently came to her when she was working at our book table in a meeting that we were conducting and handed her a piece of paper with a scripture written on it that said, this affliction shall not rise a second time. And she never could find that woman again. After she looked at the scripture, looked up, she was not there and couldn't find her in the building. So yes, sometimes angels take human forms. And you never know when you might be entertaining one when you're taking care of a needy person that really needs your help. Now I'm going to ask just one more question on this particular episode, and then we'll continue with this subject on the next. Are there divisions in the angelic kingdom? Just like in the army or the navy or the Marines or the Air Force, you have divisions from your common soldier all the way up to generals in the army. You have different levels of authority. Is that true in the angelic kingdom? Quite possibly so. We don't know a lot. In fact, we don't know enough to really say with absolute assurance. But I believe that there are seven orders of angels, and you'll understand why in just a few moments. Number one, I believe, and again, I can absolutely prove this, but having studied the Bible for 50 years and having seen the overview of the divine intervention taking place in people's lives through these heavenly kind of beings— and I believe this order is correct. Number one is seraphim. And the word seraphim means burning ones because apparently they have a very fiery appearance and they're seen in the throne room of God where there's seven lamps of fire and the throne has wheels of fire and there's a river of fire that flows from the throne and the one on the throne is depicted as having eyes that are flames of fire 
And from the loins upward, he's engulfed in fire. And from the loins downward, he's engulfed in fire. And so our God is a consuming fire. And the angelic beings that are closest to him mean burning ones, seraphim. And the only place you can read about them is Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah got his calling. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, a sign of humility and submission and recognition of God's magnificence. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Which is quite amazing because at the time the whole earth was not full of his glory. God was only moving in one little tiny place, the nation of Israel. And really inside of the temple was the only place you found the glory of God in the holy of holies. But this was a prophetic statement reaching all the way out into this era where God is moving on every continent. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah said, having in his hand a live coal, a living coal, which he'd taken from the tongs of the altar. And he laid it upon his lips and said, Behold, now... This has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. And he was commissioned into a prophetic office. I believe the next category of angels is referred to as cherubim. Cherubim are mentioned over 60 times in the Bible, beginning with the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, where the Bible said God placed cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And I happen to believe that had a double meaning. Not only did it mean that it would keep Adam and Eve from going back into the Garden of Eden, but it would preserve the way back so that as God developed his plan of salvation in the world, there could be a return to the beauty of Eden paradise. Now, cherubim are also called living creatures in chapter 1 of Ezekiel and in chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. And they're depicted as having four wings, not six like the seraphim, but four wings. And you should read in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Listen, there was uh, before the throne of God was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures each having six wings. Now these have six wings. They do not rest day or night, crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now in Ezekiel chapter 10, though, they're referred to as cherubim. And instead of each one having a single face, each cherubim has four faces, the four faces I just mentioned. 
And so there may be varieties of cherubim or living creature. And incidentally, the word cherubim is plural. The singular word is cherub. And quite often in your art, cherubs are depicted as chubby little babies with little tiny wings. You won't find that in the Bible. That's another imaginary type of thing created by man. Now, underneath seraphim and cherubim come archangels. And archangels, well, archangels are only mentioned twice in the Bible. One time in Jude chapter 1, verse 9, it talks about Michael the archangel contending with the devil when he disputed over the body of Moses. And he said, the Lord rebuke you. See, God buried Moses and Satan wanted to find that body, probably to expose the location to the children of Israel where they would build a shrine to Moses and turn it into something idolatrous. Well, Michael the archangel withstood the devil as they strove over the body of Moses and said, the Lord rebuke you. And that's the only place in the Bible where a specific archangel is named. Gabriel is named, but he's never called an archangel in the Bible. However, church tradition labels Gabriel as an archangel. Also, in apocryphal books, like the book of Enoch or the book of Tobit, more angels are described as being archangels, but they're not in the canon of Scripture that is accepted by Christians as being uh, orthodox doctrine. However, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Eastern Catholic Churches accept some of the apocryphal books, and therefore they venerate seven and sometimes eight archangels. And I could name them, but I don't think that's very important. Anglican tradition believes in four archangels, Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, and Raphael. And Islam, interestingly, also teaches four archangels. And those four archangels are Azrael, Jabril, Michael, and Israfil. And Azrael is the quote-unquote, angel of death in that worldview. A New Age angel card-reading website talks of seven archangels. And this really is important. This is extremely important. It talks about seven archangels. Again, I'm not going to name all of them. But it gives each one of these archangels specific areas of expertise, which is not biblical. It, it never assigns certain areas of expertise to certain angels, all right? Except for the fact that Michael is always involved in warfare and Gabriel is always involved in communicating messages from God. But it also, this New Age website I'm talking about, is a specific angel card reading, which is like tarot cards, but they're called angel cards. And they encourage the people playing with the angel card deck, which is a demonically influenced thing, to invoke the angels for help in certain areas. For instance, Michael is considered to be an archangel in New Age circles. And in the teaching that goes along with this card deck, it says that they should, the people participating, should invoke Michael the archangel to bring strength, unconditional love, protection of people, and places that have negative energy and to intervene in those kind of circumstances. And then they're told to invoke another archangel, Raziel, to heal past hurts, 
not to repeat mistakes and to have confidence in moving forward in life? Well, I have two responses to that. First of all, if there's 10,000 people around the world playing with these angel card decks and they're all invoking Michael to bring strength into their lives or they're all invoking Raziel to heal them of past hurts, it would make it necessary for those archangels to be omnipresent and omniscient. They would have to be able to hold 10,000 conversations at once and be cognizant of what's being said. And they would have to be in 10,000 different places at once. And those are attributes that belong only to God. And invoking angels in this way is idolatrous. It is a worship of angels that the Bible warns against. Also, only God can do these things like healing your heart of past hurts. No angel has the power to come and heal your heart. But God does have the power to heal your heart. And then there are four other divisions, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Where do I get that? From Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For by him, by God, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about how Jesus was uh, ascending far above all things when he ascended back into heaven, that he ascended far above all principality and power and might and dominion. That's arche, exousia, dunamis, and curiotes. And those could be referring to levels of authority in the angelic world. And I've read literature that absolutely irrefutably assigns this to various levels of authority in the angelic companies. But we can't tell for sure by just these two references that that be the case. I believe there are princes that are assigned to different areas, like Michael is called the Prince of Israel in uh, Daniel's writings, I believe chapter 12. He is the Prince, Michael the Prince over Israel, is protecting the nation of Israel. And then the Prince of Persia on the negative side is a demonic power that withstood the angel that was trying to get to Daniel to bring an answer to his prayer. So apparently there's levels of authority in the angelic world and the demonic world. But we can't really assign these positions absolutely, irrefutably, unquestionably. But we can think about the possibilities, and I believe that has value. Well, I've talked a long time. I've talked longer than I expected, and I look forward to the next episode where we'll be continuing with subjects like, can we communicate with angels? Can we command angels? Or can Satan masquerade as an angel of light? These are important subjects. We'll get into it on the next episode. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. 
We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.